There will be spoilers ahead. Lots of spoilers, so be careful, won't you? Uh, Houston, we have visual contact with the big scary space object. Please advise. Roger, Heroic Astro guys. Uh, prepare to land and drill a big hole in big scary space object. Over. Yeah, copy that, Houston. I regret to inform you that we have no super manly drill guys on board. Just a bunch of nuclear weapons and actual qualified astronauts. Over. Copy, Astro guys. Well... We're probably screwed then, but go ahead and try to blow up the big scary space object while we listen to our president's incredibly soothing voice. Over. Roger, Houston. Deploying magical nukes. Now, please engage Aerosmith music or maybe just a little Puccini. Yes, we've reached the final entry in our But an Incredible Simulation, and we've actually got a pairing for Armageddon that not only wasn't a commercial failure but may rest more easily on the tongue of science than that other big space rock movie. Okay, the metaphor got away from me. The tongue so of science? Shut up! <laughs> Technically, by the way, Deep Impact came out months before Armageddon and holds a, shall we say, slightly different place in the eyes of the scientific community. Let's check it out. I'm your host, Max Spurgeon Levine, <laughs> and over there, staring into the frosty void of space or possibly his freezer, is Mike, at least my name's not Spurgeon, loose. Spurge a little something for us, Mike. I can see planet bird's eye. <laughs> Indeed you can. But before we get to this, we've got our poll question. Poll question. Last time we asked you, what is your favorite Bruce Willis performance? If not favorite, which is his best? Jamie Kleinert said... I am usually not a big Bruce Willis fan, but he just seemed like the only choice to play Corbin Dallas, and he also seemed to function with the rest of the cast better than I would have expected. When we still had dollar movies, I may have seen Fifth Element way too many times. <laughs> it was the first movie I saw multiple times in the theater, and other than the first Pirates movie, which I rewatched on my first date with Brad, the only movie I've seen multiple times in the theater. It was probably five or six different showings that I attended. For full disclosure, I really haven't seen a lot of movie of his movies. Sixth Sense, Fifth Element, Jackal, Pulp Fiction, and Die Hard. He seems flat, characterless, boring in the rest of those, but other than the Sixth Sense, they're not my usual media genre. Hmm. Dr. Professor Rebecca Pelkey says definitely moonlighting. Oh, that takes me back. Huh. Dave. Dave! I can't get started. I this saw morning. Die Hard in Kyoto, as we all did, <laughs> with my brother and sister in law, and there was a Simpsons short before the movie. What? Dubbed in Japanese, and it was the first time I ever saw The Simpsons. Uh... Wow! That would be a memory. Can you imagine your first experience with The Simpsons, and it's in Japanese? Uh huh. Boy. It's like the Japanese. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> the Japanese Beverly Hillbillies. Yep. Yes, it exists. Why? Jiddu! I don't know. <laughs> this was the best time I ever had at a Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> I can't think of any exceptional performances by him, though. I hear the first season of Moonlighting was carried by chemistry, so maybe there was something exceptional there. He's consistently entertaining and can do action or comedy, but the scripts for Die Hard got worse each time. He's not wrong. Mm. Have no memory of any other movie with him, though I've seen several. Ouch! 
For a moment, I was going to say he was good in Ghost, but that was somebody else. That was Whoopi yes. Goldberg. <laughs> People get them mixed up all the time. Yeah. Val Coons. Q footsteps, Q footsteps, Q footsteps. Uh, I'm sorry. Did you say Q footsteps? Uh, no, I said Q footsteps. <gasps> oh. As this is an obscure one, not a movie, but an episode of Moonlighting. Mm. They did a version of Taming of the Shrew. It's weird and wonderful after that Die Hard, either the first or second. Well, you were right up until the last word. Uh, I remember that episode of Moonlighting. It's genius. Hmm. Bruce Willis is Petruchio. At one point, he chops open a door, sticks his head in, and goes, Here's Petruchio! <laughs> okay. Perfect. <laughs> Nick Hoffman says, He's done a lot of crap. Yeah. But there are several standouts. I think I'd go with Red. Oh, yeah. Red is just so much fun. We've seen it several times, and he plays so well with the rest of the cast. It's true, and considering the rest of the cast is people like Morgan Freeman, Helen Mirren, and John Malkovich, that's pretty impressive. I never saw Red. It's actually a lot of fun. Hmm. Steve Kellner says, 12 Monkeys. I don't know if he means the movie or he just wants 12 Monkeys. Is that a sequel to 11 Monkeys? <laughs> uh, yep. That uh, was a prequel to 13 Monkeys. Oh. I've liked him in a number of movies, but he was impressive in that. Oh, neat. Derek Steele, who I still maintain that's his, not his real name. It's his real name. <laughs> says The Sixth Sense. Derek Steele, he's a cop. <laughs> One of the good ones. Steele's <laughs> uh, a good cop. Oh. Uh, Chrissy Becker Krenitsky says, Honestly, I loved his short role in Friends. Oh. Huh. The I'm just a love machine scene is hilarious. Hmm. Now I want to see that. I, I don't know what that is, but that sounds... I, anyway, yeah. Yeah. Brian Mundo says, my standard answer, the fifth element. I think that's the third time now. <laughs> Never thought I'd be able to answer so many questions <laughs> with my favorite movie. Hey, as long as you're getting mileage out of it. He does tend to pop his head in and just say fifth element and run away a lot. <laughs> Adam Mark, our scholar, says, here's a curveball. Look who's talking. 1989. Oh. Huh? in which Willis voices the baby character Mikey from his developing consciousness in the womb until his toddler years. His experiences during birth are especially interesting. Comical, engaging, and earnestly acted in voiceover. It's not every actor who could pull off the voiceover of an infant for an entire film and not make it seem completely ridiculous. An underappreciated aspect of Willis is his voice. It's expressive, can be comedic, serious, and it's hard to imagine his most famous quotes in anyone else's mouth. I'm surprised he didn't do more voiceover work. Hmm. Interesting. He did actually do some. I remember him in uh, Over the Hedge. He played the raccoon. I just am trying to picture some poor woman who suddenly starts hearing the voice of Bruce Willis coming from her <laughs> extended belly. <laughs> ah! Ah! <laughs> that would be unsettling. Uh, Tyler Stewart says, I really liked him in Unbreakable. Interestingly, his small role in Billy Bathgate was the first time he impressed me as an actor. Hmm. Billy Bathgate. I'd, I've never seen that, heard of it, but I didn't know he was in it. I'm getting that confused with the, the dancing movie, Billy something else. Oh, Billy Elliot. Billy Elliot. No. Yeah, it's like a, Pretty I'm sure they're, they're, they're not the not, same. I'm guessing they're thematically not connected. <laughs> Pretty sure. Yeah. Agatha Gasparoni says, it's probably a two-way tie between The Fifth Element and Die Hard. Yeah. A lot of Fifth Element fans. Yeah, and, a few Die Hards, too. Uh, Ethan Curran says, my favorite movies he's been in are The Sixth Sense, The Fifth Element, Pulp Fiction, keep forgetting he was in that, mm. The Original Die Hard, and Sin City. Of those, the, mm. the first two would be his best. Mm. I like the first Die Hard. 
My brother-in-law plays it every Christmas. It is a Christmas movie, sort of. But while Willis is good, he's overshadowed by Alan Rickman. Yep. The, yeah, yeah. Cannot argue with you there. Uh, similarly with Pulp Fiction or even Sin City, he doesn't carry the movie. I'll vote for Sixth Sense with the admission that I haven't seen it in a long time. I do really enjoy Fifth Element, though. I think it's safe to say that Ethan just enjoys Bruce Willis in movies that have a number in the title. That must be what it is. <laughs> that must be it. <laughs> Charles Forsythe gives us another vote for The Sixth Sense, but Pulp Fiction is a close second. To Ethan's point, he doesn't carry the movie, but in true Tarantino style, his minor character serves a pivotal and intense moment in the story. Oh. Yeah, good point. Mm. Kelly Cooper says, my favorite Bruce Willis film will always be Hudson Hawk Yay! with Die Hard as the <laughs> eternal second choice. But the movies where he really stretched and did his best acting were definitely 12 Monkeys and The Sixth Sense, although I admit I haven't seen Looper. What a shame that is. Yeah, I don't think he, really, he stretched that much there. No. Uh, Richard Tatum, inventor of the Tatum, <laughs> says, Death Becomes Her. Oh, oh Wow. Hands down. It's not my fave film of his, but it's the only one that comes to mind that allows him to play way off type, and he nails it. Yeah, he totally. That is true. That is that is right on. I honestly think they only made that film to go, see what we can do with CG? Look, look, isn't this cool? Yeah, but he does, but he plays completely against type in He there. does. Ed Shields says just one word, unbreakable. I, you know, I remember liking the movie but i don't remember a lot about it no it's basically a guy who finds out he's kind of a superhero right but yeah and from the great north Ooh. from the frozen tundras where the where the rabid penguins sing their their mournful songs at night snow snow i guess yep snow snow <laughs> penguin 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 <laughs> penguin all day long vince uh, bruce Bruce Willis was in more movies I liked than I remembered. I thought he was funny in Death Becomes Her. Well, that's another person who remembered wow. that one. A role originally offered to Mac's favorite, Kevin Klein. <laughs> uh, or as he calls yes. him now, D. Klein. I don't know. Yes, Mr. Klein would have gotten it if he'd actually shown up for the audition if <laughs> someone hadn't spiked his tires. ha, ha, ha. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it, despite the fact I've never been, I don't even know where he lives. <laughs> uh, my fave of his is split between Unbreakable and The Sixth Sense, both the Shyamalan movies, mm. both, of which I in, both of which I think his performances are really good in. Hmm. He also points out, how can you end this series without talking about Star Crash <laughs> and that little-known ripoff, Star Wars? <laughs> I am sure that is the order they came out. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. Sure. I know it's it's a shocking oversight on our part, Vince, and we apologize to you and your penguins. I think Vince has a, a similar issue as Brian Mundo does. He just likes to stick his head in long enough to say "star crash" and then runs <laughs> off giggling. <laughs> Some point we're going to have to work in that into a series. I don't know how, but I you know I could easily see us doing a worst of science fiction, which might be fun at some oh, point. Oh God, that that series would run for three years. <laughs> it also would be really hard to pick which film exactly get the honor of being on our yeah. show because yeah, maybe we'd have to pick the worst science fiction of the seventies or something. Yeah, we'd have to go by decade yeah. at least, or perhaps subgenre. It, but what about you, Mike? What's your favorite? Uh, Bruce Willis role, as if I didn't know. Oh, come on! <laughs> <laughs> oh, number one has to be Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. Oh, I said I wouldn't do it. <laughs> no, no, no. It has to be Hudson Hawk. Why? Of course. 
I don't know. I, He's on third, and I don't care. Yeah, go on. I enjoy him in that. I enjoy his chemistry with Danny Aiello in that. I enjoy this absurdity of that entire film. I also do really like him in Fifth Element. I That was a film that I didn't actually enjoy that much the first time I saw it, and I think it was because huh. too many people were telling me how great it was, which is a sure way oh, to make sure I'm not going to like something or won't see it. Uh, I'm just stubborn that way. I do think he does really well in Sixth Sense. I'm going to say that I think that's his best performance, but my favorite is really Hudson Hawk. How about you, Max? I got to go with Sixth Sense. I'm just, I know I'm jumping onto the bandwagon, but I think he does a great job, and that's one of the better movies he was in. It's also one of Shyamalan's better movies. And, of course, I didn't see what the ending was coming at all. Like nope. it, totally... it caught me flat-footed. Yep. I, I'm not one of those people who goes, oh, God, I knew that. It's so nope. obvious. Nope. Yeah, it gets stuffed. You don't enjoy anything. But uh, that was a whole bunch of great answers. That I was, was actually really some... surprised when I did that. I was kind of doing that because poor Bruce is going through some really rough times right now. Yeah. He was the star of last week's movie. We dig you, Bruce. So uh, I have no idea what kind of person he really is. I don't really want to look. <laughs> yeah. I have a bad yeah. feeling. Bruno. But what about uh, what about uh, your next question here? We have to, uh, now that we've heard great answers from our wonderful yep. listeners and participants... Well, this was also somewhat inspired by today's movie, but I've got this one I want to make a little more difficult because so I'm including uh, a restriction. It's actually two. Who is your favorite fictional on-screen president of the United States, oh. not including Morgan Freeman or Martin Sheen? Why? Because they're too obvious. Everyone is always... I'll get to, there's actually something in the trivia about Morgan Freeman, but Martin Sheen, everybody wants him because of the West Wing. Ah. Hell, I, I wanted to vote for him, even though he wasn't a politician or on any ballot. But How about Kevin Spacey? Oh. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> was he a president in? No, he wanted to be. <laughs> no, no, this is an, somebody who actually portrays the president. Okay. Who's your favorite? It doesn't have to be who you think would be the best president, just who's your fun, the most fun. But now... Facts. Budget. Okay, this is not quite as impressive as Armageddon. Seventy-five million. Okay. A little less than half. A little more than half of uh, Armageddon's worldwide gross was three hundred and fifty million. Oh, it's not bad. Now, you know, Armageddon came close to six hundred million. Mm. But if you look at it in terms of like percentage, both of them made about four times their budget. Oh. So this was this was not a failure. This was financially a success. I like how you say that with surprise. <laughs> I, yeah, well, because everybody always talks about when, when I came into this, people were saying, "Oh yeah, Armageddon was a blockbuster, and people didn't like uh, Deep Impact as much." It's like, oh, I guess it didn't make money. Oh, it did make money. Mm. It surprised me. Uh, there's the president gives a uh, press conference. That's President Morgan Freeman and his beautiful, beautiful voice. Mm. And there's a line in it where he says, you know, Life will prevail. No, sorry. Life will go on. We will prevail like the emperor penguins. No, sorry. <laughs> Is that just for Vince? <laughs> yep. Life will, will go on. We will prevail. Originally, the line was, life will go on. We will prevail. This is not Armageddon. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, the producers later realized that the movie was going to be in direct competition and took with Armageddon and took the line out. <laughs> well, he's right. It isn't. No. Uh, after discovering the comet, one of the two astronomers is killed in an automobile accident. This mirrors the real-life automobile accident death in the Australian outback 
of astronomer Eugene Shoemaker, who helped discover the Shoemaker-Levy 9 comet that collided with Jupiter in 1994 and was one of the inspirations for this film. I see. Well, we'll get back to that. Morgan Freeman wanted his character to be wearing an earring. The director, Mimi Letterer, a letter, turned him down. Later, we see the president addressing the nation from the Oval Office, and his sleeves are rolled up, and you can see one of Freeman's tattoos is showing. <gasps> the director liked this. She felt it gave the president an everyman look. Hmm. Now, in a 2016 interview with the New York Times, Lori McCreary, who's the president of the PGA and Morgan Freeman's producing partner, said that uh, when the director wanted to cast Freeman as the president, the studio objected because they said, and I quote, that we ca- it's not realistic to cast a black person as president. Ahem. Yeah, in fact... One of, uh, McCreary remembered, one executive said, quote, we're not making a science fiction movie. You can't have Morgan Freeman play the president. Um. Aside from the (laughs) obvious racism, it would be a little, in a little less than 10 years, we kind of had one. Well, never mind the fact that uh, this is a science fiction movie. That's the other thing. This is, in fact, a science fiction movie. Uh. Oddly enough, after his performance in this movie, and as a joke, people doing a poll added... Morgan Freeman's name to a survey asking Americans who they would feel most confident to have as president. He beat everyone on the list, including (laughs) real commanders in chief. (laughs) Well, there you go. I vote for him. Now, a giant object from space did strike the general area of the eastern seaboard where Biederman impacted in the film, around Norfolk, Virginia, created the huge, now buried Chesapeake Bay impact crater. Okay, it was five and a half million years ago, but still! Oh, yeah, I remember that day. You yep, called yep. off school and everything. <laughs> this is, in terms of sort of creepy settings, although I didn't realize this, the scene where Jenny Lerner, you know, Taya Leone, first meets President Beck was filmed in the kitchen of the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, which is famous because that's where Robert Kennedy was assassinated in 1968. Ah. Not in the kitchen, though. No. Although the guy who killed him worked in the kitchen. That was Sirhan, Sirhan, Sirhan. I think you got you know, one too many Sirhans in there. They have to have three names. They always have Wasn't three that names. Wasn't that character in um, Barbarella? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Was that uh, band that George Michael was? No. Oh, right. No, it's a band so nice they named it twice. <laughs> uh, the first cut of the film had more se- actually had more scenes with Leo Biederman and Sarah Hotchner, Elijah Wood and Lily Subisky, but apparently... It wasn't received really well at the sneak preview, so they reduced them a lot, Mm. which kind of makes their relationship kind of baffling. We'll get back to that. Yeah. When the crew makes rendezvous with a comet, they're reported to have a 20-second delay in transmission of pictures to the ground, which means they were 3,728,120 miles away. I bring this up because that's a nice touch. In in Armageddon, when they're even farther away, because they're past the moon at one point, they just have instantaneous conversations with the Earth. There's nothing about radio delay. That's true. Well, that being said, the moon's only like, what, about 200,000 miles away? It's not... didn't change, yeah. yeah. Just before the movie's release, in an interesting bit of, you know, cosmic marketing, astronomers announced that the asteroid 1997XF11, about a mile across, will impact the Earth at a speed of over 100,000 miles per hour, at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, October 26th, 2028. Oh. This boosted the hell out of the ticket sales. 
Just after the movie's release, a new orbit, based on a sighting from a few years before, predicted that it will that this uh, asteroid will in fact miss us by six hundred thousand miles. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's still, I mean, yeah. close-ish, cosmically yeah. speaking. The ship that goes to destroy the comet is called the Messiah. Yes. It's not only an appropriate name, it's also, believe it or not, an inside joke from NASA. When the first space shuttle was being conceived, NASA constructed a full-scale wooden mock-up of the STS orbiter. It was nicknamed the Messiah because, according to the flight controller, Jerry Green, everyone who walked into it and saw how big it was said, Jesus Christ! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, that's a better reason than, you know, well, we'll uh, yeah. there, too. Uh, one of the NASA officials in the movie is played by Jerry Griffin, who's a former NASA flight director. Oh. He, he presided over the Apollo 12 mission, and he was later director of the Johnson Space Center in Planet Houston. Hmm, neat. The movie came into being when producers Richard Zanuck and David Brown proposed a remake of When Worlds Collide to Steven Spielberg, oh. who they worked with on Jaws. But Spielberg had just optioned the 1993 novel The Hammer of God by Arthur C. Clarke, I'm sorry, Sir Arthur C. Clarke, about an asteroid and collision course with Earth and humanity's attempt to stop it. They decided to merge the two projects together and came up with this movie. Although the premise remained the same, the final screenplay for this movie was different enough from Clarke's novel that he doesn't get any credit. Mm. It's not really that, it's not that similar to When Worlds Collide either, but that's okay. okay. Spielberg was originally interested in directing, but uh, he stayed on as executive producer because at the time, he, it, when this was being done, he was working on Amistad. Oh. Well, all right. <laughs> John Favreau said it was so uncomfortable for the cast to film in the astronaut suits and so hard to get them in and out of them that during breaks they had to be hung on a rack in their suits and brought outside to get air. This led to some awkward moments whenever a studio tour bus would go by. (laughs) And over there, hanging from the rack, there you can see uh, Robert Duvall. (laughs) We're just airing him out. Usually we keep him in the freezer, but, you know, this is one of the nicer days, so. (laughs) A couple of uh, small points. Jenny doesn't seem terribly impressed with the earring gift from her father. Quite possibly, because if you look closely, her ears aren't pierced. Oh. Yeah. And near the beginning of the movie, Jenny's mother tells her that she now has a stepmother who's two years older than her. In reality, Raya Kilstedt, who plays Chloe, is four years younger than Taya Leone. Ah. Even creepier. By the way, did you recognize who played Dr. Wolf? The unfortunate astronomer who dies at the beginning? (laughs) No, actually, what I wrote was, ah, the, the, the pizza scientist... Not Clint Howard, but an incredible simulation. <laughs> well, it's Charles Martin Smith, our buddy Toad from American Graffiti. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, this movie, by the way, has boasts four Oscar winners. Morgan Freeman, Robert Duvall, Vanessa Redgrave, and Maximilian Schell, and one Oscar nominee, James, that'll do pig, Cromwell. Yeah, not for this film. Oops. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot. Uh, of other stuff about about this. Do you uh, know who we'll was originally going to gonna play the comet? <laughs> uh, yes, actually, it was going. It was going to be Earl Holliman <laughs> in a role that will surprise you. <laughs> but let's get to the plot. Boy, I always ask you if you have extra trivia. You don't ask me. If oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Do you have any extra trivia? No, <laughs> but I might have. <laughs>
<laughs> no, but I want one. <laughs> Thank you, Zorak. Um, <laughs> the plot. <laughs> oh, those dang celestial objects. They just won't leave poor Earth alone. This time it's a comet and not the kind that makes your teeth turn green. <laughs> The comet, is discovered, <laughs> the comet is discovered by an astrophysicist and a high school kid, Toad and Frodo. <laughs> Sadly, Toad didn't learn enough about driving an American graffiti and dies in a car crash. But Frodo survives to become famous, but not quite yet, because no one's released news of the comet. This changes when fledgling MSNBC, who? Reporter <laughs> Jenny Lerner accidentally stumbles on the biggest story in human history. Someone actually named their son Spurgeon. <laughs> no, wait, something about an extinction-level event. Even though she thinks it's someone's mistress, sure, comets, mistresses, people are always confusing the two. President Morgan Freeman gets her to hold off on breaking the story for 48 hours, purely through the magic of his voice. <laughs> Duke Dickum. <laughs> and then, then reveals his cunning plan of sending a bunch of astronauts to nuke the comet. To be fair, they're just trying to nudge it into a new course, not blow it up like in that other movie. However, as none of the astronauts are rough, tough, manly oil drillers, we know this plan is doomed to fail. <laughs> but wait, they've got a backup cunning plan, which already puts them ahead of everyone in Armageddon. They'll put a million people in a big cave with elephants and flamingos, which is really all you need to survive. <laughs> flamingos is good eating. <laughs> yep. <laughs> We get to see news people yelling, social order breaking down, but only a little and mostly in foreign places. Jenny dealing with her parental issues, Frodo getting emergency married, and President Morgan Freeman making everyone feel better with just his voice. Part of the comet hits the earth, wrecking the east coast of the U.S. and some other places, but we don't need to see those because they're not important. But the brave astronauts sacrifice themselves and blow up the bigger chunk of the comet, saving humanity and proving that, as always, nuclear weapons are the answer to everything. The film. His name's not Frodo. <laughs> it's Elijah Wood looks like such a baby in this. He does. And it would only be like a couple more years and he'd play Frodo, but his name's Leo. Yeah. yeah, by the way, uh, there is one other bit of sort of science trivia. It's been pretty well established by now, but it wasn't in 1998 that hitting a comet or an asteroid with nukes would just end up making us get hit by something large and radioactive, and it would not change the trajectory. That's why they now are working on things like Project DART, which would land a, a massive engine on the side of the object and basically try to push it out of orbit. Engine. Dart. Yeah. So they're going to launch a Dodge Dart into space. That is, and hey, those that things had really powerful engines, man. Those were like V6s. Yeah. <laughs> In space. <laughs> no, we're screwed. We're screwed. A big enough thing comes at us, we're going to die. That's it. Well, you Deal know, with it. that's what an ELE is. I loved that. Uh, well, we're, well, ELE yeah. pops up and she does a web search, which was fairly new at that point. But I don't yep. know about you. Did you remember web searches being so loud? No, I don't, and I, I also don't remember them having so having no ads. But yeah. back then, yeah, I did, I had a note there. It's like, wow, the the internet was much louder back then. It did. It made the the websites made a lot more noise loading. Yeah, which is one of the reasons it would have been so slow. But that's because she had a dot matrix screen. Yeah. Did you see this when it came out? I um, 
I, I don't. Re- I honest to God don't remember. I know I've seen it before, but I don't remember if I saw it in the theater. <laughs> That's not a clue. Yeah, did you? No, I did not. This is the first time I've seen it. I've seen bits and pieces, but only in the MST3K Little Gold Statuette oh. special. So, um, ouch. Yeah. That doesn't really tell you much. Oh, might tell you more <laughs> than you think. But uh, yeah, do you want to uh, do our cast? Because oh boy, sure. this is going to take a while. We- yeah, we got a lot of people. I mean, we've got to start off, I guess, with the big ones, the major characters, such as they are. Nobody gets a lot of screen time in this movie. Some get more than they should, but we'll get well, to some, that. Well, some it feels like more. Yeah. We got Taya Leone as Jenny Lerner, the reporter of MSNBC, which was about two. This is the first time, by the way, MSNBC is, like, mentioned anywhere. It's only two years old at this point. Yeah. Well, I think they were um, partnered with Paramount at the time, if they are That wouldn't still, surprise so. me. Uh, speaking of actors that get too much screen time, <laughs> she, uh, she's kind of borderline terrible. I don't know if she's terrible. She's just colossally uninteresting. Well, here's the problem. We're supposed to believe that she's going for her big chance at being one of the anchors on MSNBC, which at that point, yeah. admittedly, might have been a- akin to being Martha Quinn. You know, who knows? <laughs> but... She she talks like this a lot. She's very breathy. And I, I, she's kind of mumbly. And when she finally does get her big chance, quite honestly, she's terrible. Yeah. when when well, I thought that was kind of interesting because uh, when she shows up at the presidential press conference, first off, she's the only one wearing red, so she looks very out of place. Yeah. And she's terrified. And you can tell. Well, okay. Well, terrified or wooden, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, she's really just not very good. And this is a couple of scenes where she's, I guess, dealing with her father, that she's got some more emotion to her. But I, I would really rather have seen somebody else in that part. Yeah, yeah. She, she was a weak point. Yeah, and she's supposed to be carrying the movie, so... Maximilian, speaking of Maximilian Schell, he looks, the, to me, in the whole movie, he looks like he's thinking, what am I doing here? Well, and the choices for her parents we have, because she's going to pop up soon, Vanessa Redgrave, mm-hmm. who's kind of awesome in everything. I mean, I just, she's just got such class. We don't get to see much of her. But there's these, this, that little scene where she's basically like, I'm over your father now. And you can tell she's not. But yeah. she's putting on a brave face, and she's trying to do her best. It's a tiny little scene, but she still has enough gravitas to pull it off. But I sit there, and I look at Vanessa Redgrave, and I look at Maximilian Schell. I try to, f- to picture them together as a couple. and I It can't... doesn't really work. And then I'm trying to picture how they gave birth to her. <laughs> and why doesn't she have either of their accents or, or any, any combination? Yeah, it's like I just don't, there's no connection between those three characters at all. I do think that occasionally Maximilian Shell makes me want to think, is he going to end up being the most interesting man in the world? <laughs> <laughs> he could have been. Yeah, Vanessa Redgrave's terrific. We'll leave out her Oscar speech. I, what I don't remember what she said. Ed, uh, okay. It's a whole thing. Is it problematic? It's very problematic. Oh, that's too bad. So, yeah, he's okay. I, I we'll get back to his part of the plot, but I I don't see him as being related to anybody in the movie. And of course, the way this character's written, we're not really supposed to be all that sympathetic because he gave over his wife for somebody younger than his daughter or oh, just slightly older than his daughter. So, yeah. okay. Let's Creepy. give let's give him a lot of screen time. We need that. 
Yeah, and then we got uh, Elijah Wood. Who plays a kid. Yeah, and does a fine job. Sure. He doesn't have much to do. No. They, they, I mean, he's very convincing as a freaked out teenager. Sure. Although, I got to say, he has the best teenage pickup line given to him ever. Basically, hi, marry me if you want to survive. <laughs> well, it works. I, it does. Yeah. Yeah, I think Lili Subisky, who plays Sarah, I think she's fine. Lilu? What? Lili. Multipass? <laughs> <laughs> You're stuck in fifth element mode, aren't you? Lili. Lili Subisky, okay. that's her name. She's fine. She actually reminds me of somebody who would play a younger version of Helen Hunt. That a lot of people point that out. As she gets got older, the the resemblance is kind of disturbing, considering they are allegedly in no way uh, uh, related. Yeah, as far as Helen knows. <laughs> huh? I don't know. <laughs> My medication's kicking in. I hope so. You're leaving out some of the biggies. Oh, well, we're getting there. And, of course, we have President Morgan Freeman, president of the Penguin Nation. I am not convinced that Morgan Freeman could give a bad performance. It doesn't matter the quality of the film. I don't yeah. think he's He can capable. be in a terrible film, but he's always amazing. Even in things like Evan Almighty, which is just embarrassing, he's so good. And I, I, there's a line from a movie where somebody meets him and and. The way the way he sums it up is perfectly. It says, "I don't know, but I want to sleep in a bed made of your voice." <laughs> yeah, Morgan Freeman's just wonderful. I like him in anything. So, and he is very presidential. He has real gravitas and real like, threat. I yeah. <laughs> oh boy, when when he's when Jenny is trying to negotiate with him, and I'm sorry, that was a real mistake putting them together. Yeah, because he just there is no way. If you put Taya Leone in a room with Morgan Freeman, the most she could probably come up with is, uh, 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 um, I beg your pardon. Okay. I'd like to go with humana, 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 humana. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and I do like that, you know, and she, when she says, I want, and he just looks at her and goes, want? He's like, <laughs> It's like, that's when he goes from being kind of this, you know, paternal, friendly sort to being the guy who has the nuclear launch codes. Yeah. I guess it also made a lot of, it, it was very effective, I should say, that they decided to bring her not to, like, a banquet room, not to some back room. They bring her to the kitchen where there's people cutting up meat. <laughs> yep. And they're also, you know, sort of implying, you know, we could leave you here and no one would find you for weeks. You'd make a nice sandwich, just saying. Yeah. We got, and how about one of the big names we got? We got Robert Friggin Duvall. Somebody else I don't know is capable of giving a bad performance. It's not a Robert great Duvall's role. incredible. But I actually love the scene. I don't love the scene. I really like the scene where he comes up to the young astronauts and just says, hey, I know you don't want me here, but you guys don't know how to do this. I know how to do this. You don't have respect for me for what I can do. We're going to have to work together. So what's it going to take? You know, and, I, and they're just like, uh, well, I didn't you, expect that. How did you know? Well, <laughs> you're all loud and I'm sitting right over there. <laughs> and, you know, I swear one of them, I wait for one of them to go, I'll have to ask my manager. <laughs> so, yeah, it's not a big role for him, but it's Robert Duvall. I, I, he's he probably terrific. slept his way through it and we'd never know. I, th I think the scene where he's saying goodbye in effect to his sons is incredibly touching. Mm. And not because of the two sons, because they're just like, hello, we are store mannequins. <laughs> Point us at the camera. Biff and buff. <laughs> yeah, biff and buff. But even there, even just with their facial expressions, they're like, 
you can tell they're scared. They're worried their dad isn't going to come back. And he knows they're scared, and he knows nothing he says is going to make them less scared. Mm. And I think that I like that whole sequence, even though it, you know, it's like a picnic and they're all talking about uh, we meet the astronauts, and obviously it's like, now you're supposed to like them. Yeah. Well, and some some of them, it's ki- it kind of works. They're, 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 they're engaging characters. Name one of them. Don't uh, look. There's the Russian guy, <laughs> the guy who gets blinded, <laughs> Blair Underwood, who I don't remember the character's name, and the lady. Exactly. Yeah. I, I think one of them's name is Pothash or something. Or <laughs> not Potter, not Potash. <laughs> <laughs> Monad. I don't. I don't know. No, I can't don't. remember any of their names. Nope. Nope. And I just saw it. I sure. Of course, I remember Robert Duvall, Spurgeon Tanner. Because how the hell are you going to forget that name? I just remember them kept calling him Fish. And of course, every time they said that, I just pictured Abe Vigoda, and I was like, <laughs> well, I, I like that they explained that in the movie too. It's because his name sounds like Sturgeon. Yeah. Which, to be fair, is probably enough for you know young guys to make fun of somebody. So. Yeah. He, he said it took 15 minutes at the Naval Academy for them to get that. Yeah. Eh. There, by the way, that is a real name, first name. There was a guy, his first name was Spurgeon. He was a famous theologian. Uh, it's, it probably goes back to the old tradition of naming a child after the grandmother's maiden name, which yeah, is why you get things like, like McLean Stevenson and DeForest Kelly. Yeah. So, uh, James Cromwell. Yeah. Um, James Cromwell's fine for the five seconds he's on screen. Yeah, I mean, you have James Cromwell, and it's just like, hi, James Cromwell, bye, James Cromwell. And I think he was just too tall for the movie. <laughs> He's like 6'6 six, six or something like that. He's like 11 feet tall. I mean, <laughs> he is. Pro- you don't want someone who's going to tower over Morgan Freeman. Well, he's with Tia Leone, really, and yeah. um, I'm guessing that he was standing in the water, and she was standing on the dock. Yes, he was working in the ditch. <laughs> Either that or she was going to start singing Lollipop Guild songs. Um <laughs> I guess we can mention John Favreau, who I kept sitting there going, "Who is that? I know that yep. person. Who is it?" And it turns out yep, uh, I, I had in my notes when I when I spotted him, I'm going, "Well, why didn't he just ask Tony Stark to whip up a nice comet killing death ray or something?" Yeah, because he's he plays one of the astronauts. Um, I think he dies early or something. I don't. He does. That's right. He's he's the dead one. I remember he's, he's also the, the doctor. <laughs> I don't remember his there's character's the name either. One, there's the blind guy. There's the dead yeah. one. <laughs> Yeah, I'd like to point out the blind guy is not blind when he goes up. He gets, yeah, he gets, and that's actually very realistic. It's something they never point out in these things. He's blinded because he makes them, he forgets to put down or he gets panicked and doesn't put down the sun visor on his helmet. He looks directly at the sun Mm. and there's no atmosphere or anything and it burns out his optic nerves. Mm. Yeah, but there's, there's something you want to buy at Kmart. Oh, cool. They've got the action figure of the dead one. Yeah, and then we're pretty much at the uh, and the rest yeah. point, I'd think, at this. I think so. Yeah, so there's I other people so. in this, and that's fine. Um, I want to say, first off, one of the things that I found just did not work for me, although in a way also set the tone for the movie, was the music. It opens up with like this kind of sweet, lighthearted, almost E.T.-like music. And that doesn't change throughout the film. Yeah, the music is very does not match what's going on. I mean, I don't. It's not like Armageddon where the music, you know, basically they hold you down and pummel you with music the whole time. Yeah, and it's mostly Steven Tyler shrieking at you. But uh, but and this is just odd. Yeah, and as I said, in a way, it does kind of reflect what's going on. We'll we'll get to that. Um, but at least we go from that lighthearted sort of 
hallmarky music to this observer observatory scene and the guy eating pizza and now we have opera and now he's listening to puccini <laughs> that yep. really underlines the action <laughs> like whatever okay and then yes and yeah we have a truck driver with jolt cola remember jolt cola safe is coffee oh no all wait that's sugar <laughs> yeah all the sugar <laughs> twice the caffeine that's right I remember yeah, when that came when out, people in high school were like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. For this in college, people were mainlining. This is what you drank when you couldn't, when they didn't have a Red Bull or the, before we had those five-hour energy drinks. I used to think of it, you know, Jolt Cola, when you can't get meth in liquid form. Yeah. Um, and what do we start off with? A car accident. Why? Again, it's a tribute to a real uh, event. I don't care. Yeah. What, what does this do for the film? That's the other odd thing. I thought, oh, wow, so that's going to be, no one's going to know about this thing. But apparently, I don't know, someone picked through the wreckage and said, hey, look, a floppy <laughs> disk. Remember those? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we could also say, although it says server down, that eventually his email goes through. I don't know. That, yeah, I'd like to think so. But it was like, okay, so, because we know this film's going to be about a comet, right? We, I mean, I'm sure the previews all showed there's that one scene with the comet like streaking over a bunch of cars stuck on the, the highway or whatever. So we know what's coming. But instead of dealing with that, instead, we're going to deal with this guy. We don't even know his name until later. And we, well, actually, to be fair, we start with the, the field trip out to look at stuff. And then we get this car accident. And it's like, okay. And then we cut right over to Jenny and the wimp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and Jenny is having trouble getting her career started at MSNBC. Okay, um, are we going to talk getting about the Getting to comet? know the cast. Come on, this is right out of the other disaster films we did the entire series on. Part of, The first part of the movie is establishing the characters, so we give a crap when something heavy falls on them. <laughs> yeah, I, hmm, should I ask that question yet? Because I don't know. Uh, the answer is, the question is, do we... But we don't really deal with it at all. Like, the best we've got is um, Frodo has looked up and said, oh, that's not a star. I wonder what that is. And his girlfriend says, it's totally the star. And he's like, it totally isn't. And then they spend 10 minutes going, it totally is. No, it totally isn't. I'm sorry. That was just absolutely believable to me. <laughs> it was. But it was just like, can we get to the actual yeah. comet thing? Because then we're... It takes us a while. Well, I assume well, that's supposed to build up, some, ramp up some of the tension. Uh, I About what? We don't even know what's happening. If we know nothing about this film, and you really do have to assume that the audience doesn't know, that we're now we're really concentrating on a dead, a dead astronomer, and we're concentrating on, will she get into this story? Because now we're going to go into the story about some um, top-level government guy who's just quit. Secretary of something or other has just quit. Supposedly, he's having an affair with someone named Ellie. Yeah. and Honestly, I really like that moment, by the way. With when him? When she throws... When both with James Cromwell and the president saying, you know, I know about Ellie, and they immediately misunderstand and think she's just saying E-L-E. Well, I think that he was using it as like a shorthand for saying, instead of saying E-L-E, he was saying Ellie. J James Cromwell, I'm sorry, the, the uh, Duke of Cromwell was saying, <laughs> was saying it, and she misinterpreted it as a name as opposed to standing for something, which is fine. But I'm also sitting there looking again this is one of the problems you brought up morgan freeman and tia leona are in this scene one of them should be on stage and the other one should be in back sweeping and it never becomes obvious to his character that she does not know what she's talking about 
He doesn't actually poke her or ply her in any way, and so she gets away with it. Yeah. And then goes and looks it up on the internet, because luckily it's just at that point where you can do that, because otherwise, what do you do? Yeah. Go to the library? I mean, not that those people there aren't smart, not that the answer might not be there, but good luck If you went in it. and said, what's E-L-E, you'd, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I need more than that, pal. Yeah, so... I also believe, though, that only one website would come up because in 1998, there were only six websites. <laughs> yeah. I actually had a website in 96, believe it or not, but wow. it was not common. Um, well, they used to give you a bunch of space because who was going to use it? But, yeah, the, but we get sidetracked, and this becomes the focus of the film. We go following her, and then we finally, as the audience, like her, find out it's like, no, it's actually going to be this horrible nasty thing which is going to destroy all mankind and then the timeline gets weird because when Mo president freeman comes out and boy i like saying that when president freeman comes out and says well this is what we're going to do and i can't even come close to doing freeman it's obvious that they've known about this for a long time yeah about a year so we don't exactly know what the timeline connection between the field trip and this is the one thing I will say that I liked about this film is they weren't trying to do it in 18 days. We've got to train all these guys. This was to be, much more believable yeah. in terms of the time frame because not just they would spot things like this. Although I have to say, by the way, that is the brightest, glowiest comet <laughs> ever. Most comets are actually fairly dark. The tail may light up depending where it, where the sun is in relation to it, but most of them just they're they're black. Well, also, when he first sees it in his little telescope there, Frodo is looking at a series of three stars, and the comet's bigger than the stars, and it's like... And it's the only one with a tail. Well, it's... Even in his t telescope, you can see it has a tail. Well, it's fuzzy. Mm. And the oh, stars, it's fuzzy. Yeah, the stars aren't fuzzy. <laughs> um, so I kind of wonder, it's a year away, and you're seeing it with your home telescope? So, I don't know. The timeline gets weird. I do appreciate that they're like, yes, we did know about this. It's not just, what? Yeah, and that we've been preparing for this for a year and a half now. Yes. Or at some point, it takes them almost two years to get ready. That is so much more believable. Yes. And they're trying to affect the comic when it's much further away than it was in Armageddon. It's like, well, it's about 50 feet from Earth. We better go now. <laughs> Yeah, I do want to po take this moment to point out that where Armageddon is used in a, by NASA and a lot of other science uh, scientific organizations to point out, here's all the stuff they get wrong. Yeah. Deep Impact is actually lauded by the scientific community as, for most of the part, except for the nuclear part, being fairly realistic. Yeah. There's the way, the way the time frame it's set up, what they would actually do... The fact that there's no gravity in the shuttle. Yeah, well, and we don't get a lot of scenes of them floating around, which I'm wondering it's if it was a budgetary thing, but... Probably. That's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. It's a very expensive effect. Um, the whole landing on the comet part without being as as pummeled as they were in Armageddon, I'm like, mm, okay, whatever. I'll, I'll give you this, but mm. I also say the comet itself, the CG is not very good. It's 98, no, so it's understandable to some yeah. extent, but it's not very good. And also the um, handheld nuclear drill things. I'm betting... Well, my, my thought was, wait a minute, you mean they didn't have to actually send drillers? They could have just put these machines that would have drilled, which, by the way, yes, they could. Those do exist, and they did exist. It just doesn't seem like there'd be enough pressure 
to have them continuously drill, like to get them my started. Thing, but my thing is each one of those bombs were five megatons. That's not very much. No. Well, if it's made of mostly ice, it might have been, but there usually Maybe. is a I mean, rock core of some sort, and just blowing the ice off is not going to help. <laughs> yeah, although it's true that comets, I think, are less cohesive. The asteroid, the evil asteroid in Armageddon, well, which was practically twirling its mustache. At least this one doesn't growl. <laughs> it uh, does whoosh, though. There is. It, there's a lot of whooshing. <laughs> I don't know where the whooshing is coming from. Space whoosh. Um, <laughs> but, hey, uh, it could be worse. It could have been a Spanish. Just saying. It, it could. <laughs> but this is not a big chunk of um, iron ferrite. It's, it's, no. it's random chunks of rock and ice held. You could technically vaporize it. I don't think you could do it. With, with a total of 20 megatons, but whatever. Never mind the four extra. Do you often <laughs> go wandering? Uh, I'd say a few extra nukes, you know, just in case we need them hey, for rum. They believe in backup. I guess. They double up on everything. I did forget to mention last week in Armageddon's favor that there actually are a number of recorded instances of asteroids literally being two asteroids that have come together, and there's not a lot holding them together. Um, and so that if there was a fault line, as they hoped there was in Armageddon, that that could actually have blown them apart. Maybe I read, I read it. Sorry. Yeah. But <laughs> we're still not talking. What was it? A thousand feet or something in either film, so, something like that. Something it, like that. It would have to be like more like, I don't know, a mile. Yeah. Cause apparently someone worked it out. If they had done that in Armageddon, it would, the two chunks would have only ended up as 1200 feet apart. Well, and that's, so they both still would have hit the earth. Well, again, that would have been fine if they had done it much further away because yeah, the angle maybe, yeah. is what counts. But whatever. We have um, another cast member I forgot to mention, but he really bothered me when they showed up because I'm like, oh, it's Clarence Boddicker. It's Red Foreman. <laughs> yes, it is. That's true, and he's there to call everybody a dumbass. I, and I'm sorry that he. I liked him. He was very NASA to me. I like him in everything. I mean, he's just and, a lot of fun. But and I did. He has a great line where you know he and Spurgeon because he, he they're the old men and he's the one who obviously knows what's going on <laughs> in the world. You know, as opposed to these children. Yeah. And uh, you know, Spurgeon's like, yeah, heroes all. I'm just. I'd feel better if I thought they were as scared as I was. Yeah. And and he's and. Red Red Foreman says, says, they're not scared of dying. They're scared of looking bad on TV. <laughs> Which is, yeah. I mean, okay. I don't think that's fair to today's astronauts, really. No, not to, to this, this bunch of children. But And what Spurgeon points out is like, this is, you know, I've actually been out there. You've done this in on the simulator. And all I could think of was that scene in Aliens. You know, how many drops is this for you, Lieutenant? Uh, 35 simulated yeah how many combat drops two yeah including this one <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a lot of stuff in here that to me distracts from the main point one of them is this subplot with jenny's dad yeah i'm not sure that really added a lot well and it's just the whole thing just felt so ponderous because we, he shows up, and, and initially we see her and her mom. So we're dealing with her relationship with her mom. Her mom commits suicide rather than, you know, hang around for the apocalypse or whatever. Which is sad but understandable because apparently she was not ready to let go of her husband. And she had nobody else, which, you know, it's just sad. But I thought it was kind of impressive, the fact that she, you know, decides to go out with dignity. She's going to die on her own terms. But, yeah, 
and that at least somewhat has to do with the eventual coming of the comet. But the dad thing, he shows up and he's like, shows up with his new wife, which is, you know, good luck with that. But then yeah. he tries to show up again and she's like, look, mom needs you. You should be with her because she knows something that dad doesn't, she can't tell yet. And then mom commits suicide and then dad tries again. And, it's like, and then finally there's this reunion scene um, and I know there was another disaster film we saw where the two characters stand there and watch. I think it was a giant wave of lava coming towards them. I can't remember which terrible film it was. But they just didn't decide to stand on the beach and get hit by the giant wave, which is whatever. But the whole, like, why do we need this? I don't, I don't buy it, and I don't think it adds anything. I think it would have worked with, with a better actor than Taya Leone, because even when we're supposed to have the tearful reunion, it's not really that, you know... The, it's not that moving. You know what to me is one of the most moving parent-child moments in this? It's when uh, Leo Biederman and his dad, who's played by Richard Schiff, who we all know from the West Wing, and they're at the uh, bunker, which, by the way, how, do you, how, much, I, how much do you love the fact that the backup plan was something they cribbed from Dr. Strangelove? Why not? <laughs> yes, uh, surviving in some of our deeper mind shifts. <laughs> Animals could be bred and slaughtered. <laughs> but when when his dad just, he realizes he's going to go after uh, Sarah and his mom's trying to stop him and he knows he's going to go and he gives him his watch because he said you'll need something to trade and the way he just throws his arms around him and is crying, I thought that was the most moving goodbye in the movie. Yeah. And it's like two seconds. Well, and then we, have, but it's also predicated upon this whole, I think, unnecessary subplot with the two kids getting married. Like we have. I to, thought that was a nice touch, actually. Except it's it like, doesn't lead anywhere because then they don't actually get on the list. Yes, I don't. I don't. It felt like it slowed the movie down yet again, because we're still not dealing with the comet, which is okay because we're going to spend. That's a two-hour movie. We're going to spend about an hour and three quarters not dealing with the comet. Oh, that's kind of the focus of the movie. It's rather, I mean, that's kind of the um, double meaning of the title. It's the deep impact of the comet hitting, but it's also the deep impact on the people, the social and the personal stuff. I think this is trying to be more of a character study and more of a how would people react, what would people do, as opposed to focusing on it. The problem is the focus is so broad with so many people, I don't think it quite works. Actually, I would kind of disagree and say that the focus is so narrow, we have no idea what the rest of the world's doing. Oh, sure we do. They mention it in passing occasionally. <laughs> I am and, oh, yeah, surprised that they don't, when they, the, the smaller of the, the Biederman part yeah. actually hits the earth that we just don't see people looking off screen and we hear a boom. <laughs> like it's <laughs> almost that bad, but it wasn't quite chop kick panda level there. But, no, but we, and then the whole like, Oh, you know, Russia, it was, you know, Europe and Africa were hit too. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> it really was like an afterthought on the news yeah. story. Uh, but Oh yeah. Africa. Anyway, uh, coming up <laughs> next, the hilarious. No, uh, but I'm. Uh, we're actually getting close on time, uh, which I didn't realize yeah. this show went. I, I do want to point out the ending of this movie. They try to make it all hopeful, but if you think about it, it's a really terrible situation. The East Coast is been, has been wiped out. That's like a third of the population, mm -hmm. and the remaining people are sitting there looking at our president, going, "So what you're saying is you would leave us all to die." 
handpick a few people, and you would just go into this bunker, and we're going to die. Wow. I mean, I'm sorry. The society would probably collapse pretty soon after that, that the president would be executed. Yeah, I... I don't know. It's so hard to tell because we have just nothing to go on about what the general population is doing in this film. And well, they're littering a lot. We see that. Yeah, and we see that's stock, about always. And we see stock footage on the news. But let's let's yeah. get to the ending and really yeah. sum this up. The finish. So Max. Yeah. You don't remember if you saw? It. I think I did. I'm pretty sure I saw it. Do you think you had a probably? Reaction? Huh? Do you think you had a um, reaction? I kind of th- I remember thinking, well, this is honestly, it's kind of like a lot of the articles I read, which are this is more scientifically accurate, but it's not a lot of fun. It's not very interesting to watch. No, and this is kind of a waste of an amazing cast, mostly amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I it's I, I remember just sort of thinking, meh. But now, now that you have but, a little bit more experience, a little bit more um, a genesis something. Uh, that's how it's Genesis a, something. Yeah, it's what? a French phrase. Who's you Genesis understand. something? Right. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think now? That's the important part. Well, now I think. Meh. <laughs> no, I no, that's unfair. I think it's. I think it's okay. <laughs> I do like that it's not as treating you like a moron, uh, stupid the way Armageddon is, and just like science. What do science mean? But. On the whole, I think it's too unfocused. I think it's too, can't quite decide what it's going to be. And I, I don't know. I just, I don't think it's a lot of fun to watch. I probably, probably wouldn't watch it again. What about you? Did you see it in the theater? No. Yeah. Okay. It, Did, had you seen it before? No. As I said, the only thing I saw this was your scenes first from the MST 3K okay. special. <laughs> okay. Well, what did you think? It's dull. This movie is dull. It's a movie about the end of the world as we know it, and I feel, eh. <laughs> this film does not leave a deep impact. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, it, the science is more serious. The characters are less cartoony, but it does not make a better movie. I, I Having Tia Leone as a lead, she's supposed to be the person that we're going with. I'm sorry, she... Maybe she's skilled in other roles. She's not skilled in this one. And it could be the direction, because I think the direction in general is, what's that word? Dull. We don't see, it takes too long to ramp up to get to the comet part. When it comes, we see literally no reaction from anybody in the world. Would people be going crazy and doing stuff? Yes. Yeah. Do I appreciate President Freeman saying things like, I'm going to freeze prices. I'm going to see that all everything is available as it was. We're going to keep going as best we can. Good luck with that. Yeah, and I'm going to bring back the entire armed forces, so everyone's going to be out there with guns. Yeah, and I'm going to have a you know a curfew, and we're going to have uh, basically military rule until yep. you know, everything. Yeah, good luck. Do we see any reaction to that? Nothing. Nope. Nothing. Not even a protest sign. Nothing. No. The, I was expecting at least one, you know, leave the comet alone or something. <laughs> Comments don't mean to hurt people. They just way making friends. <laughs> They're just lonely. <laughs> yeah, we see literally nothing about how the world reacts anywhere. 
We see a couple of, again, stock footage on an MSNBC. Oh, dear gods. We should have, if I'd known product placement was going to be at one of our poll questions I and I'd seen this film, it would have certainly been up there in my list. Yep. I was really thirsty for MSNBC <laughs> this whole time. Mm, catch it. <laughs> I... Yeah, it's not memorable at all. And when we finally get the destruction, there's not much of it, and it's not very interesting. Like, hey, we get in New York City gets trashed again. A little, but like the wave comes, and we don't even see it knock down any buildings. It just gets wet. So we hear off camera that the East Coast has been destroyed. I guess it has been. It would make sense if it had been, but we certainly don't get to see it. And then we see another tidal wave literally kill two people. Right? Tia Leone and Maximilian Schell. That's it. Yeah. Oh, and then later we see the water coming and washing over where that big traffic jam was, and we assume those people die, but yeah, all we, we would... really see is the mountaintop, and we see Frodo and uh, Galadriel there with their baby. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, yeah. I, I felt a little sorry for for Leo Biederman there. It's like, wow, I now have a wife and a baby to take care of, and I'm not out of high school. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Yeah. So it doesn't give us, there's nothing to latch on to at all. It's not fun. There's no dis disaster porn. There's no action. There's all these little subplots, which themselves might be interesting if it wasn't fact that there's a comet over there. We don't really have a person to identify with. I think the person we we're supposed to identify with is Jenny Lerner, but Taylor doesn't do a good enough job for that. Yeah, I think I would have really liked to see what Spielberg in 1998 would have done with this. Yeah, there's one scene that actually reminds me of what this film is doing to the audience, and that's when the poor blind astronaut, they're on their way to, to their final mission, their final countdown, if you will. And what, <laughs> does, won't. what does Robert Duvall decide to do since he can't get up or go anywhere or do anything? He decides with a captive audience, I'm going to read Moby Dick to you. <laughs> which is not entirely unlike being in a theater watching this film. You just get to hear about the knot tying chapter. <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah. I think these were both, these were both kind of silly movies, although, and I know it's a terror. I know Armageddon has a lot of stupid stuff about it. Yep. And Adam Mark actually made some very good points about it is one big ball of toxic masculinity. It is. Yep, and that the science is it's anti-science and very it's anti-science is anti-intellectualism. But at least it was entertaining. Yeah, this film isn't even that. Yeah, so. it's unfortunate. But but we have a poll question. Yep, which we would like you to answer. Yes, or we'll drop a comment on your house. <laughs> we won't. Yes, we will. <laughs> well, Mike will. No, um. <laughs> stop. Read the question. <laughs> Who is your favorite fictional on-screen president? Not including. Mar Morgan Freeman or Martin Sheen? And you can answer this fascinating political science question on our website at maxmikemovies.com. You can leave a comment or you can email us directly for extra president points at us at maxmikemovies.com. You can uh, find us on Facing Books. We are not on X the Unknown. We are just on the Facebook. Just say Facebook. Uh, you can under Max <laughs> just Mike once. Movies. Just say Facebook. Never. <laughs> gods and of course we are on the podcast app of everyone's choosing everywhere but this has brought us to the end of our series but an incredible simulation and we've got a new series and a new movie next week tell us about them mike yes well we're going to too late you can't tell us about them now <laughs> we're going to walk the dark street 
cue saxophone. That title's a deeper and uh, extra bumpy bucks for anyone who figures out where it comes from. And I bet your first answer is going to be wrong. But that's okay. Walk the dark street. We're going to actually take a look at noir. And we're going to look at not just noir, we're going to look at new noir as well as old noir. Or is it noir? I never could get that right. So we're going to take we're going to take a look at that that very interesting dark subgenre of films, uh, noir. And uh, at some point, we're going to have to probably define what that actually means because I'm not entirely sure, but I yep. know it when I see it. And next, it's like porn? No, <laughs> it's nothing like porn. That's that's exactly how Oliver Wendell Holmes described it. Noir is Pornography, porn? you know it when you see oh, it. Oh, I thought you meant noir was porn. It's like, no. No, no. <laughs> but we're going to start off by, I'm afraid we've come to the sunset of this podcast. Oh, dear. Yes, the sunset. Or at least Sunset Boulevard, which, no, no, not the musical, although they made one. And I haven't seen it, but I'm trying to picture it, and I can't. I have. Oh, dear. Okay, well, we'll talk. we're going to see the actual film, the, 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 I think, was there a remake? I guess we'll find out. But we will see the original Sunset Boulevard with William Holden and Gloria Swanson. I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. Fine. <laughs> Kristen Honey, we're filming. <laughs> Next week. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench.